Good evening. Good evening to those of you who are watching uh, online. Good evening to those of you who are present this evening. As we get it started um, in Revelation chapter 13, and we're going to jump into 14 as well because the two really need to be seen together. But as we do get started, let's ask the Lord to give his blessing to our understanding and to our reading of the word. Father, once again tonight, we have a, a good bit of ground to cover. I pray that you will bring to our memory the things that we've looked at that will relate to this evening. And that you'll allow us to pull all of these pieces of this beautiful puzzle together so that we discover you in it. Thank you for the blessings we have felt. We look forward to the blessings you have for us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So Revelation chapter 13, and we're going to go in like about the first 12 verses or so of 14 as well. I'll tell you about the ones post-14, uh, or po after that. But I want you to, I wanted to spend uh, some time in 13. Right in the middle of 13, we transition to the future. And I'll, tell, I'll point that out to you when we get to it. But 13 covers some information about the past, some information that relates to things that have already happened. And then it jumps into a future pre presentation of things to come. We'll talk about those just briefly, and we'll talk about the primary issue. So I want to start right out by saying the primary issue in Revelation 13 and 14 is who you will worship, who you are going to worship. So here's the opening of Revelation chapter 13. Then I stood on the sand of the sea. So this is John. He's standing on the seashore. He's at a beach. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on the heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion, and a dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. If you remember in chapter 12, when we were reading that this morning, those of you who were, who were able to catch that, a dragon comes up in chapter 12 as well. In verse 3 it says, And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns on his heads. And now we have a dragon showing up again. This one looks a bit different, but it also has seven heads and ten horns and ten crowns on its horns. So I want to I look at this thing a little bit. I want to take some of the pieces and kind of see if we can adjust them and make them fit together and make some sense for us tonight as we begin to look at the dragon versus the saints. The dragon versus the saints. So we're in Revelation chapter 13. A little bit of an introduction. Remember, the relationships between the chapters are important. They're part and parcel to understanding the story that John is telling. Chapter 12 ends with a threat from the dragon on God's people. Chapter 13, 13 begins with a beast coming up from the sea. So chapter 12 ends with this threat. The dragon is wroth with the woman. He goes out to, to attack the remnant of her seed to keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. You then come here and you recognize immediately this dragon is coming up again. You should recognize the dragon after just ha read, having read 12. There wouldn't be a break. We studied the Bible chapter to chapter to chapter, and we take breaks between the chapters, and we often forget what we just read when we start the next chapter. Remember, those don't belong in the book. They were added later. So if I were actually breaking this book, I would break it somewhere around, around verse 6 or 7, and go to the future and put that, that chapter break right there. But if you're a dragon in chapter 12, a dragon in chapter 13 are meant to be understood and seen together so that you can compare and contrast what you're looking at. I stood on the sea, 
And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads, ten horns, and on his horn ten crowns, and his heads on his head a blasphemous name. So here you have him in all of his glory. His descri- the description that John gives, the beast which I saw in verse 2 was like a leopard. There's the body of a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. Those are the bare feet. He's got bare feet. And his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. And so all of his heads have a bit of a face of a lion on them. Because how are you going to put the mouth of a lion on there without it looking like a lion? The dragon gives him his power, his throne, and his great authority. The sea refers to a populated area. Revelation 17, 1, 2, and 8 tell us this. That people coming, that, these, the, that the seas represent populations, populated spaces. So by contrast, something coming out of the dry land would be an unpopulated place. Out of the water, a populated place. Out of the dry land, an unpopulated place. So this one comes up out of a populated place, coming up out of the sea. Revelation 13 has given us this composite. This composite comes from Daniel chapter 7. Did anyone recognize that as we were looking at it? That these were the creatures from Daniel chapter 7? Here they are again. They're popping up from Daniel chapter 7 here in chapter 13. It's important to see the connections because the issues are the same. Chapter 7, he said, I saw four great beasts came up from the sea. Again, a populous place. Each different from the other. The first was like a lion and it had eagle's wings. Remember the mouth of a lion? The one we're, the composite we look at has the face of a lion as well. <clears throat> it had the feet like a bear. The second beast was like a bear. It, was, it looked like a leopard. The third beast that comes up was a leopard which had four wings of a bird. And then he sees in his vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly, exceedingly strong, huge iron teeth, and it had ten horns. And this creature also has ten horns. So you got all that so far? So this, this composite in chapter 13 is telling us to think about chapter 7. Um, when I was in, in college, there, was, there, there were a lot of things I forgot. Actually, it was, this was seminary, university. So there were a lot of things I've forgotten and a few things I remember. One of the things I remember was from a, from a Professor Morris who read his book for one of our classes. And he said, if you are looking at a quote in the New Testament, and it is quoting something from the Old Testament, you need to not pull that quote out of its spot and drag it into the New Testament. The New Testament author wants you to look at that quote in its context. Look at the greater context that it's in. And yeah, I found that to be a very good practice to take. When I see Jesus quoting someone, or the New Testament, any place quoting someone in the Old Testament, I go back and I try to look at the context. One of the best places you'll find this is when you read what Jesus is saying on the cross. When you read what Jesus is saying on the cross, I think Pastor Tim pointed this out a few months ago. Um, It's been several months now. That he's actually quoting one of the Psalms. If you just take those quotes as they are in the New Testament and you go back, don't go look at the whole Psalm, you don't realize that the Psalm is a Psalm of discouragement and struggle, but ultimate victory. And that when Jesus is quoting or singing that song, he knows that the song ends in victory. So look at a context, and here we are when we're looking at this beast that's popping up in Revelation chapter 13, and we're being told that's in, that it's this composite from chapter 7. We're going to take that whole context in. So I want to remind you a little bit about chapter 7. This is the first vision that Daniel has that's his own. It compares to chapter 2. It runs through that same set of empires. But it ends up differently. Instead of just showing you that, like chapter 2 does, that God comes in and wins in the end, it breaks that down a little bit. 
it first gives you a judgment scene. And in that judgment scene, we are told that judgment is found on behalf of the saints. We're told that the saints win. That when the judgment actually takes place, the people of God win. They are judged appropriately, judged righteous. They are the ones who are given the, the, uh, the proper outcome. The judgment that's being described there is not a murder trial, murder trial sort of judgment. It's more like a lawsuit. What, it, what is being described is more like a lawsuit. One party is being sued by the other party. And if you remember how this thing works out in Scripture, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. He's called the accuser of the people of God. In fact, in chapter 12, his, this accuser is being cast out, and they're saying, good day for heaven because he's been cast out, bad day for earth because that's where he's landed. But the accuser is, the, the, on the one side of the bench is Satan. He's accusing you. He's accusing you of not being worthy of being saved. When the judgment comes from God, when the, when the, the judgment seats are, are, are prepared and God sits on the seat, the judgment is had on behalf of the saints, meaning that those accusations against you are put away. And instead of you having the, the restrictions that Satan wants on you, the loss that Satan wants, the death that Satan wants, you are instead are given a judgment of God on your behalf and therefore declared righteous. Okay? So in chapter 7, we're told that we're given that picture. And then we're getting this final glimpse. It's such a tiny glimpse, it's easy to miss. But in chapter 7, he gets a glimpse of the second coming. And I saw one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. This actual language is picked up and taken into the New Testament as well. When the Apostle Paul describes the coming of Jesus to the Thessalonians, he says, you'll see one coming in the clouds of heaven. You'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. You'll see Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven. So put the, putting the whole pictures together, chapter 7 tells us who wins and why they win. tells you the saints are saved. Chapter 13 tells us that this battle has been going on for a long time, and the dragon is behind it. The dragon is behind the scenes here. Chapter 7 also brings forward this little horn. When we see the little horn come up, he comes up and he plucks three out as he arrives. And he speaks pompous words. And we find him later in chapter 8 attacking the saints and giving. And he, in this chapter, he's given the 1260 days, three and a half times, during which time he dominates the saints. When we talked about Daniel, we said, look, Daniel does not see Christianity coming. So to him, this little horn is attacking his people, the Jewish people in Israel and in Jerusalem. What God is saying to us now that we're looking back at it is this will be a power that will dominate the Christian church after it rises. And we'll catch up, a little bit, catch up on a little of those pieces as we go. So the review here is Daniel chapter 7, 21 and 22. I was watching the same horn making war against the saints, prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was made in favor of the saints, the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So the four beasts... The four beasts were four kings. Remember the empires the kings are representing? Babylon, Medo-Persia. Remember, most if you're looking at this historically, you'll find most people just talking about the Persian Empire, but it is an alliance that creates the Persian Empire. The Medes and the Persians combined together. If you remember that bear, when, when Daniel saw it, it was raised up on one side. And the text tells us that that second one, the one who was not raised up at the beginning, grows stronger than the latter one when we look at this, this king, this kingdom later in chapter 8. 
Greece will follow Medo-Persia. We have Babylon, the time of Daniel, and, the, and the, the people of Israel taken there for 70 years. That 70 years is completed under the Medo-Persian Empire. After that comes Greece, under that famous king, who is the leader of the, of the, of the empire at the time, Alexander the Great, whose greatness is known by all the cities of Alexandria that he founds, that some of them later get their name changed back to whatever they were before. Greece dominates that same region and expands the empire to the west. The Persians had been trying to get into Europe. Greece now has begun to creep into Europe. They're the first real European power. It's an important thing to note because everything prior to this was a Middle Eastern power. Now the Middle Eastern power gives way to the European power and we can begin to see the shift. The shift toward the west takes place beginning with Greece. After them comes Rome, and now we are strongly centrally in the middle of a European power. This power controls from Europe. It controls what we know as Europe all the way up to Great Britain. From the Rhine River to the Atlantic, from the, from the Mediterranean up into the, to, the, to northern England, to the region of what we would call Scotland, all of that is controlled by the Roman Empire. They control North Africa and they still go back and control the Middle East. We find the Bible talking about the Romans having an impact and the Greeks having an impact on the Jewish people. What's being told to Daniel in this process is the Jewish people are not going to rise up and have, a con have control again. They're not going to rise up and control this region again. They did under David and Solomon. And you, you need to not forget that because at one time during David and Solomon's reign, they controlled the Middle East all except for Egypt. If you read the Bible carefully, it tells you the, the uh, extent of David and Solomon's kingdom goes all the way to the, to the rivers of Babylon, to the Tigris and the Euphrates. It's a massive kingdom when David and Solomon are in charge. They don't have to control Egypt because they have a peace treaty with Egypt. Both kings marry an Egyptian daughter. Both kings are given the Egyptian king's blessing and they form this alliance because of that marriage. It, it leads to the downfall of Solomon. We'll, if you read through the story, you find out that under the marriage to the kings, to the Egyptian king, he falls for their gods and he starts to walk away from his God. But so if you were going, if you were to take this back in time, you'd have the Assyrian kingdom and you would have the Jewish kingdom, the Israeli kingdom before these two. Before that, you would have the Egyptian kingdom. Okay. So we have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. We see those in Daniel 7. They're here in the composite beast. Daniel 2 also, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, followed by ten toes, ten horns. The ten horns are here again. The ten horns were also present in chapter 7. They're here in chapter 12 as well. It's that Those horns are everywhere. It has ten horns that a little horn would rise up among them and dominate Europe for 1,260 days or years, three and a half times, 42 months, 1,260 days. It's repeated in that way over and over in the Bible. And as I mentioned today, the reason God is getting so busy repeating this over and over and over again is because the organization that claims to be serving God and caring for His people is actually doing the opposite. And we'll come to that a little more strongly in a few minutes. So Revelation chapter 13 shows us this composite picture of the successive kingdoms. Get this piece that Satan has used to dominate God's people from the time of Daniel to the end. Israel never rises up as an independent nation. They have a small period of independence that 
is given them, granted them, though they're still surrounded by the Ptolemaic and then the Seleucid kings of Greece. So they're independent, but they're not really independent. Because at any moment, if they disobey, get outside the lines that they've been, they've been agreed, they've agreed to, they'll just be dominated again by the other powers because they're so much bigger and so much stronger. So from Daniel, the Babylonian kingdom, until the end, Satan has been using these successive empires and kingdoms to dominate the people of God. The Babylonians did it. The Medo-Persians did it. The Greeks did it. The Romans did it. And then that divided kingdom has its own representative, again, which we will continue to talk about a little bit later. Some details to note. In Daniel chapter 12, you see this king, this dragon authority power. He has seven heads and ten horns. And he has seven crowns on his head. Okay? Get the picture. Recognize what we're looking at. Sorry, Jeff, I've got some thumping going on. I think it's this thing hitting me. Um, I'll try to not do it anymore. It's sitting on the seven heads. That's an important thing to keep note of. It's representing those heads, those empires that we've seen before. This is pre-horns. Okay? Now... We have a, sec- a change in chapter 13 that instead of those being seven crowns on seven heads, there are ten crowns on the horns. So the power that's being represented, it ha- represented now has translated from the last one, the Roman power, to the horn, the divided Rome. This, it, would be, it would be seven, if it were looking at Daniel chapter 2, it would be ten crowns on ten toes. Okay, but that would not be as cool as on the horns. So the picture that we're trying to get, though, in time is represented by the movement from Daniel 12 to Daniel chapter 13. Daniel chapter 12 is telling us at a time when Rome is still dominant. Daniel chapter 13 is telling us we're in a time when Europe is now dominant. Picture clear enough? Okay. So the dragon of chapter 12 has seven heads and ten horns. The dragon of chapter 13 has seven heads and ten horns. So let's count heads and horns. Okay? So we have the Babylonian kingdom that's represented by a lion. How many heads? One head. So one finger. Okay? The second kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, is represented by a bear. That's one head. Right? So that's two. We, we, We agree so far? Okay? The next kingdom is represented by the Greeks. Now the Greek, this, this leopard beast that comes up, has four heads. Now we're up to six. Okay. And the last one, the Roman one, is this dragon with one head, and it has one head, so we now have seven. Seven heads. The ten horns are easy, they all pop up at the same time on one of the kingdoms, it's the last one, it's the Roman one, and it's got ten horns, so we have seven heads and ten horns. It's clearly trying to give us a clear picture. It's clearly trying to say, look, this is what I was talking about in Daniel 2 and in Daniel 7. Now I've jumped into Revelation with it, and here it is. And I want you to see that the dragon gives it its power and its great authority, and the dragon was just revealed to us as behind all of this mess in the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, there's no makeup on this thing. In the previous chapter, there's no lion face, bare feet, 
leopard body. None of that's there. In chapter 12, it's just Satan himself. It's just the dragon, and he's out in the open fighting in conflict with God. When we move into chapter 13, now he's got all this makeup on. Because chapter 13 is trying to tell us the dragon has given his power, his seat, and his great authority. That these empires have always had Satan pushing them to the front over and over again. Once Israel fails as the leading nation of the region because Solomon falls into idolatry and then Israel splits into two countries. They're never strong enough to really dominate the area anymore. And once that failure happens, it's empire after empire after empire after empire splitting then up into the toes, the ten toes for the ten horns. I wanted to make sure we're we're in this together when we get to chapter 13. So I'm trying to take the time to make sure we're all clear on what what we're looking at. Because this is an important transition. Because what Revelation is telling us is Satan's been behind this all the time. That there was one kingdom represented by God and his people. God was its real king. And once that kingdom fell, Satan has been behind the empires of the world ever since. So if Satan is behind the leadership leadership and leaders in the world, would you expect them to be great people? You would expect some problems from it, wouldn't you? That's the case. We see it over and over again. These rising, rising up to power. I don't think man was ever meant to be powerful or famous because we just don't do well with either of those things. And mankind tends to blow it again and again and again. So there we are. Now I want to get to this dragon a little bit. That the dragon is giving his throne, his power, and his great authority. If, if in these cases, this conglomerate description is that each one of these things has been given their power, their throne, and their great authority under the dragon with the dragon's strength, The last one comes in, this last, even this composite beast is also given this power, his power, his throne, and his great authority by the dragon. So as we move through time, this is the underlying picture. The dragon has been leading, lending his support from the ancients to the present. Okay? Verses 3 and 4 describe a mortal wound. It says, oh, sorry, I moved on to 14. That's why it didn't look right. I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and the deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. So he sees one of the heads of it's, as it's been wounded. It's a seven-headed, seven-headed beast. If you look at the heads of this thing, the heads have been in the past mostly. One that's in the present is wounded, and it looks like he has been killed. We'll get specific about this in a bit. So he sees one of the heads mortally wounded, mortally wounded. If you've been mortally wounded, what does that mean about you? What does muerto mean in Spanish? Death, okay? Death. You've been mortally wounded. You've been muerto. You're supposed to be dying. It looks like a deadly wound, but it's healed. It looks like he should die, and he is healed. That gets specific in a minute. He's given authority for 1,260 days slash years. This day for year thing is significant, but I think it's easy to see in in its own light. Ezekiel has been there with Daniel. Ezekiel and Daniel are writing at the same time. And this day for the year thing comes out in Ezekiel quite a bit. 
But what I want you to see more simply is if you look at these these prophecies, you should always assume a day is a day. And you start looking at the prophecy and say, does this fit if it's a day? Does this make sense if it's uh, talking about days? We looked back at Daniel and 2,300 days were given. And we said, if this is a day, if this is to be taken literally, then it would extend Israel's stay and Israel would go back to the promised land and this whole thing would be set right. But it doesn't, the time doesn't work out. The statements about what's going on for that 2,300 days don't work out. And so it has to apply then to this longer frame. And if you look at the longer frame, it does sort of give you a better, better picture of what's going on. It gives you a better understanding for what you're looking at. This 1,260-day slash year thing does the same thing. Remember, we, we had these three in Daniel. Four, 457 B.C. is the starting time for the rebuilding and restoring of the temple, the 70 weeks determined for Israel until the Messiah, the Prince, and Jesus comes right on time, 27 A.D. in the fall. He will be cut off in the midst of the week, and he dies 31 A.D. in the spring, three and a half years, half of seven being 3.5. This one extends all the way down. I told you we'll be talking about this tomorrow night in greater detail. I think it'll be an important thing for you to catch. And then in Daniel, he also tells about this little horn dominating for 1,260 years. Revelation picks that up and talks about it several more times. It begins in 538, and I'll tell you why in just a minute, and it ends in 1798, and I'll tell you why that in just a minute. So first, the little horn that rises up has to take out three different horns when it rises. So when, <clears throat> when Rome gets divided up, so think of your Roman history. I know you guys all have it right present in your mind as we're thinking. Remember the Romans rise about 500 B.C. and they, they drive into the, to the turn from, five, from 80 to B.C. when Jesus turns the clock, right? So when Jesus is born, that's a switch in the clock from 80 to B.C. They rise at, as a republic, just like the Athenians had been. They rise as a republic where the people are represented by a senate. The senate is, is then nominated and voted on by the people. And then the, at that turning point, they become an empire, the first emperor rises up. The first Caesar claims the throne. He forces himself into the people. They kind of support and enforce, and there's a lot of mixed feelings about it, but they end up with an emperor. That becomes how they run the world for the next 500 years, approximately. That transition from, from republic to empire holds Rome for a while. 300 or so BC or 300 or so AD Constantine moves the capital of Rome and decides to go off to Constantinople because it's more safe. The Huns have begun to come in. The Huns are simply the people off the plains of Europe, the mountains of Europe or on over the over the mountains of Europe beyond what we think of as sort of the eastern borders of Germany, Poland, etc. The mountains that divide what is a what is one continent into Europe and Asia. There's no separation between Europe and Asia. There's just a mountain range and a high plateau. Those peoples that have lived up on the plateau drop into Europe and they find happy hunting grounds. They come in and they dominate. They are really dominant. One of the reasons is because they're basically a cavalry and nobody really has this big of a cavalry. And so they come charging in and they dominate the peoples in the area. They plunder all over the place. But what they primarily do is begin to upset the Roman Empire. 
and the Roman Empire begins to break up into pieces. And some of those pieces are here in our list. Rome controls the North African Vandals. Rome controls the Portuguese Heruli and the actual Italian. They're not Italian by birth, but they live in what we would call Italy today, northeastern Italy, near Venice, the Ostrogoths. These three group, these three horns are defeated by the bishop who Constantine leaves in charge of the city of Rome. Do you get all that? Let me back the bus up again. Okay. Constantine leaves Rome, goes to Constantinople, and sets up a new city named after him. It's amazing. Just like Alexander. These people are so humble. He sets up a very defensible peninsula to protect himself from the oncoming Huns. Okay? Got that part? Hold that one in this hand. Back home in Rome, he wants some way to keep, con- keep in control of the empire, but he doesn't want Rome just to fall into pieces, so he leaves a local magistrate who's in charge, but he puts the bishop of Rome in charge of the city, really. He gets his own turf. He gets 100 plus acres in the middle of the city that are his. The bishop of Rome is one of five bishops at the time of the Catholic Church. Catholic has become a name for the church in modern times. At the time, it just meant the universal Christian church. So these five bishops controlled the universal Christian church. They were the bishops of Alexandria, Jerusalem, Antioch, Ephesus, and Rome. Well, it's obvious for a Roman king who has just converted to Christianity, who should be the guy in charge? The bishop of Rome. So he leaves the bishop of Rome in charge of the five bishops, elevating him to a new role, calling him Papa, or the leader, the boss. Okay? Everybody clear so far? That happens at the beginning of the 4th century, early 300. Once that takes place, there's a shift in authority, and the power seat of Rome is Constantinople. Okay? But the power seat of the church is the city of Rome. Now, nothing really happens for a couple hundred years. There's no real unification of that political and religious power until Constantinople begins to weaken. And as Constantinople begins to weaken, the western, western part of Rome begins to set its own pace and be its own thing. And the church divides. You've heard of Eastern Orthodoxy. That takes place with Constantinople and, church and things to the east. Greece and over. And then Catholicism takes over in Western Europe. And that's how the two get divided. It's a church division that creates Eastern and Western Europe. Okay? Everybody clear? Okay? We're not trying to run over you with the bus. We're just trying to keep you on the bus as we drive along. So what he does is brilliant because Christianity has taken over the hearts of the people. When he converts, he puts the church leader in charge of the people, keeping the people calm. Christianity has been so successful in the, in the movement into Europe that it's not just affecting the, the Romans, but it's also affecting the crazy Huns and the crazy Germans and the crazy Scots, who the Romans don't want to have anything to do with. And Christianity is beginning to convert the enemies of Rome as well. It's a brilliant move. I, I said this the night we talked about it. It is either God blessing this man when he converts, or it is one of the most brilliant political moves in the history of mankind because he moves to a safer headquarters and he puts 
in charge back at home, the guy who is in the hearts of all the people across the empire. When the empire, be, when the emperor becomes Christian, the empire overnight becomes Christian as well. Literally everybody, it's, it's the popular thing to become Christian. So the Romans all become Christian. All kinds of stuff happens, which we're not going to talk about tonight, but all kinds of things, good and bad, happen at that moment. But the church begins to have political clout then. Before this, the church is persecuted. After this, the church has political power. Political power, joined together with church, always ruins the church. One of the greatest things America ever did is said, we will not have a state church. We will separate the power of the state and the power of the church. We will not have a state church. In doing that, they assured that politics would keep its grubby hands out of the church. Mostly. Okay? Long story to get to this 538 date. These three groups have one thing in common. They do not accept the church's position on who Jesus is. These three groups all agree that Jesus is not God. That he is a God. And as such, the church then starts this struggle against them. And they, the church, they will attack Rome. These guys and these guys will attack Rome. Eventually, with the help of the Eastern leadership, they defeat these three, and the last one is defeated in 538. That's why I stop my, start my 1260-day clock on 538 instead of some other time, like 321. Because this is when the consolidation of political and religious power really takes place. Okay? Long explanation for one point, but I really wanted to make sure you got the point. Okay? That this is why we started this count where we've started it. He's speaking blasphemous things. One of the things the church does as it grows in this political authority is it claims the power to forgive sins and to set up and take down kings. I'm not so worried about setting up and taking down kings. I'm worried about this power to forgive sins. Do you remember when Jesus heals the man who is lowered down on the rope in front of him? His friends, the four friends, lower, the, lower him down into, this, into there. And the first thing Jesus says to the man, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Do you remember how the Pharisees and the people watching respond? They said, no one has a right to forgive sins, but God, this is blasphemy. The church claims that it has the power to forgive sins and or not forgive sins. It claims the authority to do what only God can do. It claims the authority to to decide whether you're going to heaven or you're not going to heaven because according to the church, the power was given to it by God. So as the church rises politically, it claims this very important power. Now imagine if you're living during the, the time from 538 on as the power of the church is growing and they tell you we can keep you into heaven we can get you into heaven but we can keep you out created a great deal of control the ability to control the people of Europe even to control the leaders of Europe because if your king is not going to heaven he doesn't deserve to be your king because he's only only your king because God said he could be king something known as the divine right of kings. So the authority of the church grows immensely politically during this time frame. Okay? 
42 months, 1260 years, three and a half times. It's, it's stated in all three, all three ways. 538 would end in 1798. And right on time, as if somebody might be directing this whole mess we live in, right on time, Napoleon sends a general down to the Pope to capture a general named Berthier, to capture the Pope who's sitting there at the time because he disagrees with him. He then puts his own Pope on the throne in Rome, and the church cardinals go off by themselves, and they, they elect another Pope, and Napoleon puts the Pope he's arrested in a prison. So we actually have three Popes, three people who speak for God, three people who are supposed to be in charge of everything, and so when you have three where there should be one, you have none. And this has been called the deadly wound, right out of Revelation chapter 13. The church's authority is taken away. Now, it's been eroding for a while. It sort of starts in 538. The, the power kind of peaks in what we call the Dark Ages. Think uh, 12 to 1500 or so. That's kind of the deepest, most authoritative power of the church during that time frame in Europe. And it really does take control of the ten toes or the ten horns. It really does have mandated control over, think of everything basically um, in Western Europe and great influence on everything in Eastern Europe. Control in Western Europe, a lot of influence in Eastern Europe. All right? Now I'm trying to remember why I told you that. The point that I'm trying to make, though, is that, oh, the, the Reformation begins to erode the authority of the church. From, the, from that 15th century or so on, you start to see the erosion of the power of the church with the rise of the Reformation. As bits and pieces begin to split off. You remember Henry VIII takes England and walks away with them. You remember that Luther rises up in Germany and big chunks of Germany slip away. Switzerland slips away, slips away. So but big pieces of Europe are beginning to move around on the table of the church's authority. And the church's authority is being weakened. But when Napoleon, and, and it's probably why Napoleon feels like he's uh, got the courage to do this. Napoleon, who lives in, a French, lives in France, which is still a Catholic country, decides that he is going to do what he wants and goes down and captures the Pope, hauls him off to prison, sets up his own Pope. When that is done, everybody in Europe kind of goes, okay, you're, you're not in charge anymore. We all know you're not in charge. Okay? Right on time. As if God knew what he was saying. Back in Daniel's time, 600 B.C. or so, God said, there's going to rise this little horn power. It's going to take three out. It's going to replace three of those toes or horns. It's going to rise to tremendous authority. It's going to, in that authority, claim blasphemous things. And it's going to be able to do that for 1260 years. It will dominate the people for 1260 years. This is why the Bible repeats this so much. Because this organization claims to be representing God. And in reality, they're being given authority and seat from the dragon. Okay? Now, I, I, I make this comment every time, and I want to make it again tonight. Every time I talk about this. We're talking about the political leadership arm of the church. We're not talking about the local priest. Best place to see this in Revelation is when you're looking at the seven churches. Seven churches kind of flow through this same time frame. They go from the apostolic church all the way through to the end of time. 
when it gets to this place where the dark ages, where the authority, the political power is at its peak, it doesn't actually condemn it entirely. It condemns some of it. It condemns the church in that time frame for a while, but not entirely. It's actually harder on the next church. It's harder on the Reformation church. It claims the Reformation church claims to be following God, but they're not. They have, a, they have the appearance of being followers of God, but they're not. As the church disintegrates into all these pieces, that next phase, it's, the, the pictures of the seven churches are harder on that one than they are on this one. And that's the reason. Because there's a political arm of the church, and then there's a local parish priest. Remember that out there in the parishes, most of these people are just trying to serve God in the best way they know. Most of these people who are called to parish ministry are not interested in, a, in the politics of the church. They're interested in serving the people in the best way they can. Their people tend to be illiterate. There tends to be very little education in these small villages. They're run by, by princes and dukes and earls who, who hold an iron fist over the people. And the priest is trying to point those heavily beleaguered people to God as the real answer. That's why when Re- Revelation talks about that phase of church history, it's not so hard on the church. God is wanting us to know that those who claim to be his leaders are not being led by him. And so Revelation is trying to give us this picture as we come through chapter 13. It's trying to tell us what we're looking at and how this little horn has morphed into this picture so that we understand what's happened. Okay? In the previous chapter, this is described as the the church represented by the woman fleeing into the wilderness to get away from the dragon. Do you see how the Bible's opening the story? Here it's told us the dragon is given in its power, its seat, and its great authority. Picture, picture lining up for you? Finally, it makes war with the saints. In that fleeing into the wilderness, we have several group, groups who during this time of great political authority for the church stand up against it. These are courageous people. A few years ago, I, don't, I can't remember how many years ago, um, we took a Reformation group. We took a, to, a group of people from our church to do a Reformation tour. We went from, um, from Germany all the way to Rome. We went through Switzerland. We went into the Alps. One of our primary reasons for going into the Alps was to stop at a region of the Alps where a group of people who had stood against the Roman powers had lived and hid in the wilderness. They were called the Waldenses. What was significant about these people was, you know what their, you know what their big uh, crime was? All winter long in the Alps, when snow was piling up, they would go up into the mountains. They would go into these little huts. And there are a few of these still there. We went into one. But the, these huts are basically stone buildings. They look like Fred Flintstone's house. If you're old enough to remember Fred Flintstone. If you're not, look him up. He's on YouTube. Fred Flintstone's house, and they have a big stone slab in the middle. And what they did was all winter long, they copied versions of the Bible. They copied the text. And then they would go out. They would disperse through Europe. They were peddlers, so they would travel and sell things. And they would say, hey, buddy, want a copy of Mark? Literally, they were, their crime was that they were giving away pages of the Bible to people in Europe. The church was trying very hard to control 
how many, how, what people found in terms of the Bible. And these people were persecuted. We went into one of the caves where they hid. In those mountains are beautiful caves, massive caves in some cases. The one we went into, easily the 45 or so of us fit inside the cave. We have a picture of our, our gathered group in one of those caves. These people would go up into the caves when the armies were sent after them. They broke the back of the Walden Seas eventually. They got the Walden Seas in the Alps at a cliff and ran the group entirely over the edge. The, middle, the church of the Middle Ages, the political church of the Middle Ages, was not a good group. And so the Bible tells us over and over and over and over and over and over, actually, that during this time frame, this group doesn't represent God. That this little horn power that rises up and controls the, the community, the people of Europe, is not his group. He hasn't put them in charge. The beast that we're looking at is representing that beast. The healing of the wound begins to take place hundred or so years later. More power is given. More authority is restored. But the big, big move happens under Mussolini. Mussolini in 1929, under the Lateran Treaty, gives that hundred acres or so back to the leadership of the church. Gives the papal papal uh, bishop a new seat. And it is an independent country within the middle of Rome, in, inside Rome. It's an independent place. As he does that, the, the story begins to grow. The political authority and religious authority of the church begins to grow again. The church had never gone away, but it didn't have political authority. It didn't have a political home. It didn't have a place to be. And so it, with, with Mussolini's leadership, that, tra- that treaty allows them to have their property back and, th- and the, the growth begins. But the growth that we're seeing in Revelation 13 is not yet fully returned. Revelation 13 describes a power that at the end of time has global impact, has global sway, and has, has true leadership globally. It's growing, but it hasn't yet arrived where we understand it to be, according to Revelation. The next place, from here on, we're talking the future. Okay? Understand that when we reach this point in Revelation, we're, we're, we're no longer looking at historical pictures. We're now looking at things that are coming in the future. I'll give you some, some quick tips on this, but I don't want to spend a lot of the time from this point forward on this piece. The time frame is post-1798, because it's after the, the wound is healed, which the wound happens in 1798. You have this, this beginning, this change, this new thing arriving on the space. The beast is from the earth. This is important because the beast is from an unpopulous place. It's from a place that's not very populated. It has lamb-like horns. I have an image of this that I carry, that I, I, I use with Bible study groups and things that has a picture of a, a buffalo with those nice little cute horns weighing 2,000 pounds ready to trample you to death. But it has lamb-like horns. Okay? And it speaks with the same voice of the previous beast. Two major powers that arise after 1798, France and the United States. You know the French Revolution takes place right in the same frame, time frame. They kick out the church 
they kick out the, the, the leadership of the kings, the, all the royal families and all of the, the people who had been sort of running the fiefdoms in France. And um, they, they decide to have a completely secular government. Around the same time, 1776, you have the beginning of the United States. These are the two major authorities. What's different about them? France is in Europe, a populous place. The United States is out in America, not a very populous place. So this business of rising up out of the sea or rising up out of the earth kind of takes a significant turn. It appears that the second beast that's being described from 11 to 17 may in fact be our very own country. We don't know. Hasn't happened yet. This is perhaps the most startling thing in chapter 13 for most Americans. People who are not from America don't have a hard time getting this. Because people who are not from America feel a little bullied by us sometimes. And they can see the, the, the strength of the United States turning bad. And being really bad if it does turn bad. But it is the most likely candidate for this final showdown of muscle revived by the beast. As this d- revival happens, this is what it describes. Number one, it will cause everyone to worship an image to the beast. It will perform signs, great signs, calling lightning out of the heavens. It will have an image to the beast made. It will give breath to the beast. Breath gives life. And will force the mark on men, the mark of the beast. Almost everyone has heard of the mark of the beast. People who don't ever read the Bible, don't know anything about the Bible, have heard of the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is simply a description of those who have given in to worship this power. It's one of two things that's happening because you get the mark on your forehead. The mark on your forehead represents that you're sold out to this thing, you actually believe it. Or you get the mark on your hand. The mark on your hand is, look, I'm just going along to get along. I don't believe this stuff, but I don't want to have any trouble with you people. The end of Revelation chapter 13 says that those who will not worship the beast will be persecuted. There will be death threats and they will not be allowed to buy or sell. I have looked at Revelation 13 since I was 17 years old. That's when I first sort of opened the Bible. That's the first time the Bible was opened for me in a way that that brought this to my attention. And as the pastor was talking about a global power and a global authority and global things happen, I was sitting there thinking in my 17-year-old mind, that's not possible. Global powers? People in the world can't agree on anything. How are you going to get them all together to worship anything, to worship the beast, to cause other people to worship, to put an economic ban on people who won't worship, even to threaten them with death? But not likely. As I've gotten older, it's become more likely. And man, did COVID ever turn the page for me. Because for the first time in my lifetime, I see a global movement. Everyone has agreed. It's, it's crazy. In a matter of weeks, the whole world shut its doors. I'm not saying COVID is this. But I'm saying, wow, what I thought was impossible in my 17-year-old brain actually happened. I don't know what the devil has up its sleeve. I don't know if this may be the beginning of that growth of authority and power. But I am telling you that it creeps me out a bit. Creeps me out that the whole world closed its doors in agreement. That the whole world does anything in agreement kind of flips me out and makes me look at Revelation 13 differently. 
So does the United States take a, a major role in this? That's what the Bible seems to be indicating. But we don't know because when we get to verse 11, we're looking at the future. And once we're looking at the future, we have to go with our eyes wide open, with the text in our mind, and try to go carefully forward. This is not where we start saying, this is definitely going to happen. Do you remember what Jesus told the disciples when he was telling them about the crucifixion? He said, I am revealing these things to you so that when they come, you may believe. When they come, your faith will still stand. You won't think that God is off his throne just because the world has gone crazy. That's the point of these prophetic pictures. So that when the world does go crazy, you don't lose your faith. When the world does go crazy, you said, yeah, God predicted the 1260 years. Of course we went into the dark ages. Of course the, the, the authority was raised by the Bishop of Rome. It makes sense now as I look back at it. During the time, if you could have looked at it clearly, you would have done okay. God is still on his throne. We have had enough of history go by from Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the ten horns, the little horns, and all of the stuff we've seen from Daniel and Revelation in just the last week. We've only been doing this for a little more, well, tonight is just over seven days. This is the eighth day. And in that process, in the covering of that of the, the time that we've been together talking about this, we've seen that God knew and God knew, and God knew, and God knew, and God knew, and God knew. And the only thing left is, does he still know? From here through the rest of 13, and then on in to the rest of Revelation. I want to wrap up with a couple of things. The number of the beast is 666. This is something that was done fairly regularly during this time, because you could insert Latin numbers into the, in, or into the name, so... A person whose name had certain kinds of letters in it could be added up and make a number. This was one of those things. They've actually found these, uh, these things in various places carved in walls. They're usually something like this. I love a girl whose number is 24. Okay? And then your friends were supposed to try to figure out which girl that was. Well, is it Susie? Her number at No, no, not Susie. Was, that, was it Elaine? No, 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 it wasn't Elaine. Because that's literally what they were doing with these numbers things. But the, when John writes it, he says, look, there's a number of this name. And this, I have seen this name added up for, both, for the Pope. I've seen it added up for Ronald Reagan, uh, Richard Nixon. Um, uh, I think it was Bill or Hillary. I think it was Bill Clinton. Um, it, I've seen a lot of ways this number has been used. This is not the most important piece. This is like the last little you know, sprinkles on top of the cupcake. You've gotten all of this thing given to you before, and this is the last little piece. Don't get hung up on this one. Go look at all of the other ones. This one will be like that confirmation thing at the end of the whole list. So don't let this be your most significant piece. Here's wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for its number is 666. Important thing about sixes. Seven is a number of God's perfect completion. Seven days of creation. Six is just that one left. That imitation, it's almost there, but it's not quite. It's actually the number associated with evil and with Satan. You see this as the number chosen by people who worship demons and paganism and things like that. Watch for it. It hasn't come yet. It is not your most important piece. 
if you get your social security card and it has 666 as the first three numbers, don't freak out quite yet. See what else happens. I want you to go, I want, don't want you to stop there because the next number is the number that really matters. It's the beginning of Revelation 14. Then I looked and behold the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. With him were 144,000 having the Father's name written on their foreheads. You know why it's not the forehead or the hands? Because when you're following God, it's a complete commitment or it's not a commitment at all. There's no going along to get along where God is concerned. So the forehead is always the place where this is written because it's symbolizing that they're fully committed to him. So these 144,000, they don't have a mark on their forehead. They have the Father's name on their forehead. What God is doing, remember the chapter divisions are not there. You've just come out of this scary piece, this beast and this threatening stuff and this name and all this number and business are all right there. And there's going to be a death decree and you won't be able to buy or sell. And chapter 13 ends scary and he goes right into, and oh, by the way, I saw 144,000 standing on the sea and they had the Father's name on their forehead. Do you see the contrast? He's trying to help us see the contrast. He's saying, yeah, yeah, the devil's going to spit and sputter and make a lot of noise, but I win. Be on my side. My name written on your forehead. These are the ones who were, def- who were not defiled by women. They are virgins. They are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were redeemed from among, among men, being the first fruits of God, to, uh, and, to the, and of the lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. I tell you this because the 144,000 is often called out as a literal number at the end of time. If this doesn't tell you this is symbolic, nothing will. Because according to this paragraph, they are all men. Ladies, sorry. They are all men who have never been with a woman. Woman. They follow them wherever he goes. I'm good. That's doesn't, that doesn't scare me at all. They were redeemed from among men. Okay. They are the first fruit of God. Last line. And in their mouth was found no deceit. They are without fault before the throne of God. These are, according to this, and if you add chapter, uh, chapter 7 and some other things to it, these are 144,000 men who are virgins, who are from the 12 tribes of Israel, who have never lied, never been deceitful, and are without fault. Here's the point that's being tried, trying to be made. This is 12 times 12 times 1,000. This is the ultimate representation of perfection. These are the redeemed. You know how the redeemed get perfect? The blood of Jesus. The robe of righteousness that God wraps around them. That's how they become without gall, without deceit. That's how they become this whole discussion about having never been with a woman. This is not about, it's not about male and female relations. Women's, women represented this idolatry that was going on all the time in the Old Testament. That's what's being described. Twelve times twelve times a thousand. Flip over in your Bible to the end of the book, and you'll see that there is a city described in the same way. It's twelves and twelves and thousands. Here's the people fit the city. It's simply describing the redeemed. If you go to chapter 7, the same number is recorded, and they're coming from the 12 tribes of Israel. And when John turns around to see the group, it's a great multitude that he cannot number. This is a symbolic number. He 
group of people who will be redeemed. They're gathered around the sea of glass. They're playing harps. They're singing. There's a lot of awesome things going on, which I'm going to skip because we're short of time. I just want to skip to the next piece, which begins to see a flyover by three angels. You know those flyovers they do in football games? The jets go over? That's what I picture. These angels flying over. I saw an angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. So we know that this time of judgment, this final judgment is happening, but in the moment of this, the gospel is still available. The first angel flies over and said, The time of God's judgment has come, but if you will choose to follow Jesus, you still can. You see, we don't like deathbed confessions, but God's good with it. If if you sincerely come to God at the last breath, He's good with it. Because He knows you're a mess anyway. He's good with that happening at the judgment time. The gospel is given by the first angel at the time of His judgment. Worship Him who made the heavens and the earth. The previous chapter says, worship the beast and His image. This chapter says, nope, worship your Creator. Worship Him who made the heavens and the earth. Second angel flies over. Another followed saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city because she has made all the nations drink of the wine, the wrath of her fornication. The first one that captured Jerusalem, Babylon becomes the image of all things evil. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. The city of Babylon actually fell twice. Babylon has fallen, and she's fallen again. You're not to be taken in by this thing. She has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. This is, again, not representation of relationships between men and women. It's representative of a relationship with God. You have, this Babylon is representing all the worship of all other things. Here's what the second angel is saying. Don't be fooled by the beast and his image. It's just another fake. These things have fallen. They won't help you. Worship God Don't be taken in by the fakes. The question is, will you worship the beast in his image? Threatened or not threatened, will you worship him? Will you commit yourself to him or will you just go along to get along? Will you bow your knee to him? You're now Daniel. You're now in chapter 3. You're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there's there's an image being raised up by the king. And the king says, everybody bow down when the music plays. And three heads are standing when everybody else is on their knees. They refuse to worship and to drink of the wine of the wrath of their idolatry. Daniel and Revelation run in parallel. The second angel says, don't be fooled by the fakes. Worship your creator. And then the third angel lays it on to us. The third angel follows, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image, receives his mark, either on the forehead, you really believe it, or on the hand, you're just going along, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. He says, you think that these guys who would kill you are significant? Don't be afraid of someone who can take your human life. Be afraid to lose your eternity. The angel says, don't get involved with this. Worship your creator. 
The gospel is still available to you. You can still be covered by the blood of Jesus. Don't be fooled by Babylon's faith. Worship your creator. Because if you choose to worship anything else, you will lose your way. If you read the rest of 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, you will see the destruction that comes on those who refuse to follow God. That as the earth crumbles, as the systems and politics and finance crumble, they suffer under all of that. And the people of God don't. The last thing's said. Declarations are made to John by those who are leading him through this vision. The first says, here is the patience of the saints. Here's the patience of those who are saved. Here are those who keep the commandments of God, have the faith of Jesus. It's the same thing we saw at the end of chapter 12. When the dragon came out to fight the church, to fight against the people of God, it says, here are those who keep the commandments and have the faith of Jesus. What do these two things mean? The faith of Jesus is one we're pretty familiar with. Faith in Jesus and the, and the covering of his grace and, the, and the, the blood that was shed for us. We're committed to the covenant that God made on our behalf. Keeping the commandments of God scares us, but it shouldn't. Because to follow God in the way God desires for you to is to be blessed by God. When we align ourselves with the things God calls us to, to be aligned with, the blessing is ours. Because the commandments of God are not arbitrary rules. They are a description of how the world works. Just like your manual for your car is a description of how your car is supposed to function, just like the description of how the law of gravity is simply a description of how gravity works, Isaac Newton did not discover gravity. Gravity was not invented by him. He simply described it. If you think these are prescriptive laws, arbitrary things to make you do, then you can resist them. But if they are, in fact, simply God's way of trying to help your life be the best it can be, then don't be afraid to keep the commandments of God. When God said, don't worship idols, he was saying, they're rocks and sticks, don't be dumb. Maybe he didn't quite say that, but you get what I'm saying, right? When he said, don't have any other gods, of course not, because there aren't any. Every other one is a fake. When he said, hey, you know what you should do once a week? You should rest. Not because I want to put my thumb on you and hold you down for a day, but because you need to remember that I am God. And once a day, you can hand over the reins of all the things you're trying to control to me. And 24 hours later, I'll give them back to you. And you can be refreshed and restarted and better connected with me. Trust me for 24 hours a week. When he said, honor your father and your mother. We say, man, but my father and mother weren't very honorable. Okay. But can you not run them down in public? You see, the most simple act of honoring your father and mother is to not drag their name through the mud out through your life. Maybe they weren't very honorable. Maybe they did some things that were horrible. But you don't have 
to share that with everybody. You may need to share it with a counselor. You may need to share it with somebody who can help you through your own struggles with it. But you don't have to drag it through the mud. Most of us have pretty good parents. Most of us have good people who raised us. To honor them is to tell the good stories, not the bad stories. Don't lie. People won't trust you. Don't steal. They'll put you in jail. If you look at what the commandments of God are, they're not an onerous thing. They're how to live a life in this world that's that's better. They're not a cage around you. Sin is the cage. The commands of God are the gate that will allow you to step out in freedom. He already knows you're going to blow this one. That's why Jesus died. They go together because they're a balance of trusting God enough to obey and trusting God enough to know that the blood of Jesus was for them. We said at the beginning of this we would seek as we studied through the text of Daniel and Revelation to understand if there's any news for us. Of course there is. The news for us is God is still on the throne. He's not quitting. He's not giving up. He's not done. And he can be trusted. He says to those who are dealing with this struggle at the end, trust me. Trust me and follow what I say. Trust me and know that the cross is about Jesus. It keeps coming back that message from Genesis 3 to the end of Revelation. You can trust me. The covenant I made to you, I will keep. I don't want to take you home. Let's pray. Father God, it's been a fast trip through what we've done of Daniel and Revelation. We have one night to wrap it up. I pray for your guidance and blessing in that. But I pray that we will, in the discovery of this moment, that we will recognize a call on our life to trust you and serve you. To know that we have the covering of your grace. But to stretch our faith into trusting you enough to do what you ask us to do. And to discover that in it is a blessing waiting for us. Lord, ahead of us, maybe in our lifetime, is this other thing, this re-upping of religious political power dominating the world and the church. An advancement of that even to be global. That one of the great powers of the last couple centuries will stand in support of it and use its its power to forced worship. Lord, if that's in front of us, don't let us forget that we can trust you. If it's for a generation in the future, Lord, I pray for that generation. If it's for our generation, I pray for ours. In both cases, I ask for your Holy Spirit to be so deeply felt in your church 
I would hear your voice and follow you. In Jesus' name.